A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Now, if this is your first time listening to a film history podcast, well... You might enjoy it. Don't bet on it. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, well, title gives it away. I'm here to talk of the stories of films and I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all those ingredients that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast have more of a mainstream leaning to them than anything else. There's certainly films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of cinema, of how hard it is to make films and the fact that people still manage somehow to make them. In each episode, I cover two movies and I try and keep the waffle to a bare minimum, cough splutter. Um, So I'm going to crack on with the first of the two I'm going to chat about in this episode. I love this film. We're going to 2013. I'm just going to play you a clip and I'll come to the story of this one, the other side of this. I can't find them. Anna? Joy? Wait, I checked the entire house. They're not here. Dad, there was this RV and they were playing on it. There was, we thought there was someone inside. You wait here. Let me go. I couldn't find them. Detective Loki. Do you have children, detective? I'm going to find your daughter. Show me your hands right now. You put those girls somewhere, Alex. No. I know you put those girls somewhere. He stays in custody until my daughter's found, right? We have a 48 hour hold on. It ends tomorrow unless we bring charges. We'll charge you with something. That boy has never been in trouble, not a day in his life. Well, this thing's clean. I'd start looking in the woods by the rest stop. The police said they're letting him go today. What you doing? Tell me! Oh, no, no, no! Day six. And every day, she's wondering why I'm not there. You told us that you could protect us from everything. Why did you look for my daughter? So what we've got there is a clip from the 2013 thriller Prisoners, directed by Denis Villeneuve, written by Aaron Guzikowski and starring Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Viola Davis, Mario Bello, Terence Howard, Melissa Leo and Paul Dano. And the story of this one goes back to the screenwriter whose name I just mentioned for you there, Aaron Guzikowski. And it was he who would spark the relatively long genesis of what would turn into one of Hollywood's finest thrillers of the 2010s. But... 
it would be a story that took a little time to come together. And so it started with Guzikowski in the 2000s, writing the screenplay. So it was around 2006, 2007. He started working on a story with a little bit of an Edgar Allan Poe basis to it. Uh, a, a story of a, a kidnapping at heart that started off as a short story and over a year or two involving sending it out to assorted people who would ultimately represent him, uh, the, the, it was fleshed out into a feature script and so it evolved it was originally called the prisoners and would eventually be called prisoners now Guzikowski was working full-time he hadn't actually sold a screenplay at this point and as he would explain as would be explained by variety when he started writing the story he was worked in the mornings before he went off to his day job at a New York advertising firm and in the evenings after he came home he would then work on the script and that job was he was designing apparently the envelopes for American Express direct mailers but by with the time we got to early 2009, with the script going backwards and forwards between his then manager and, and him, the, there was a draft that was ready. And this was one that got fairly instant recognition too. But what makes the story of Prisoners particularly interesting is how many hands it went through and quite acclaimed hands as well before it would get the ultimate green light. Because this wasn't a case of people struggled to see this was a film that was worth making. This was one where lots of people wanted to make it. It's just circumstances prevailed against it a little bit for a while. So in particular, the script bubbled to attention, although already, as I'm about to explore, there would have been there were people interested in it when it landed on the 2009 blacklist. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the blacklist, it's voted for every year in Hollywood and it is the best unproduced screenplays. So all the scripts that are sitting around looking to be made that thus far, for whatever reason, haven't got over the line. And so that's effectively a shopping list for Hollywood studios that gave the project some fresh traction. But it didn't necessarily need it that much because, as Guzikowski would tell the excellent Go to the Story website, I mean, he, he sold the script relatively quickly to a company called Alcon. And at that point, he could quit his full time job and he could concentrate on writing. But he also went into the, the, the background of prisoners. And he said, I definitely probably wrote almost a novel's worth of stuff just in terms of scenes that weren't used or all the stuff that I think in some weird way inform what ended up being the final script. He said he wrote many, many drafts over a two-year period. And whilst on the surface Prisoners is a fairly by-the-numbers-looking Hollywood movie about a father looking for his kidnapped children, as anyone who has seen the film would, would know, and I'm going very, very spoiler-light in this podcast, it's really something special and that, that there's a lot more to it. And one of the, in fact, probably the first highest-profile person who became a fan of the film was Mark Mark Wahlberg, obviously known for his acting, but also known for his producing behind the scenes in Hollywood as well. And there was a point in March 2009 where Wahlberg was said to be attached or, or very close to committing to be. And director Brian Singer was involved in making the film. Now, I should note that Singer's career is mired in controversies now. Um, but at this point, towards the end of 2009, he was on the verge of returning back to the X-Men films a few years, uh, a few years later that he'd uh, I mean, he'd done Superman Returns in 2006 and he still had clout to get projects going. But in this case, it didn't get going anywhere, even though Christian Bale, too, was flirting with the idea of appearing in the movie at the time. 
Then we move forward to September 2009. And again, the blacklist really hadn't exploded at this point. But Antoine Fuqua, the director of films like Training Day and The Equalizer, was the next person along to be attached to the film. Now, by this stage, it had been, as reported by The Hollywood Trade, slightly downsized from the size of film it would have been if Brian Singer and Mark Wahlberg had made it. But the plan at the point Fuqua signed up in the autumn of 2009 was to fast track prisoners, to get it shot in early 2010. 10 and that was with an eye on a release at that point I mean feasibly by the end of that year so Fuqua as well was the first to offer Jake Gyllenhaal the project and at this stage it looked like it was going ahead even though Gyllenhaal's schedule was filling up and eventually the pair would move away from the movie still we get to December 2009 it all looks like it's going forward as my old friend Brendan Connolly reported back when he was at Slash Film he said last night the local board of aldermen carried a motion to allow Warner Brothers, which by this stage had picked up the American distribution rights to the film, to cast the town of Derby in Connecticut in the US as itself in the film and any potential sequels. Not that there are any sequels suggested by this, but that's just a material thing that Hollywood tended to do. And it's, it, he noted in his report that Fuqua and the crew will be using the local police insignia, the town's seal and 750 of the locals as extras. So this had got quite far down the line and then suddenly it just kind of like fell apart and in fact Fuqua would pick up the story telling WENN many years later he said I prepped for it and actually brought up Jake Gyllenhaal for the lead at the time and he said the timing was wrong because he was doing a play and he was also con he would also concede I didn't really want to make that film and this was something that many of the creatives who both made it and didn't make it wrestled with as Fuqua would would put it I was struggling with the movie because I have children and it was the idea of kids being abducted and the concept of that he said, I couldn't think of making that film for a year in my life and dealing with that idea and being a father. And so this particular iteration of Prisoners would fall, then fall away quite quickly. Uh, Hugh Jackman would go on to make the film Real Steel. And so any connection he had with the film at that point appeared to have disappeared. Gyllenhaal moved on. Leonardo DiCaprio at this point had a look. Um, and there were stories that he was loosely attached for a while. And he certainly had the clout to get it off the ground. But for whatever reason didn't happen. And so we go back to Aaron Guzikowski, who's retained at this point a relationship with Mark Wahlberg. And Wahlberg has been the champion of him and of the Prisoners script. And so if they weren't going to make Prisoners together, Wahlberg instead hired Guzikowski to write the screenplay for the film Contraband that would actually end up being Guzikowski's first produced credit. And so Wahlberg was a pivotal part in his career. And Guzikowski now runs the uh, US version, the US show Ray by Wolves, that's one of his, and has gone on to have quite a career. Um, but it was, even though it wasn't, he wasn't appearing in the film. Wahlberg was one of the absolute keys to getting this unlocked. And as Guzikowski would reflect to get into the story, he said the thing that was keeping prisoners from going was they couldn't get all the right elements together at the same time for the right amount of money. They were continually trying to find the right talent to make the movie they wanted to make. And the constant in all of this actually was one of was the script that this wasn't a case that other writers were coming in and heavily rewriting the the. the 
final draft that Guzikowski had put together was the magnet for people wanting to take a look at this project and see if they wanted to do it. And one of those people eventually who the script got to was director Denis Villeneuve, who at this point hadn't made a film in the US or in the English language, but he was coming to prominence, certainly to Hollywood studios, and was getting offers from Hollywood studios. And in particular, the Oscar nomination for his film Insondies was really a, a kind of turning point for Hollywood and Villeneuve because, uh, I mean, Villeneuve went along to the Academy Awards um, when he was nominated there. He would meet people like Roger Deakins. I'm coming to him shortly. But he'd also been attracting overtures from Hollywood for some time. And finally, he read a script that really had something in his eyes that he could do with. And he knew at the point that the script landed on his desk that the film had been had been through several hands. In fact, at this point, he was making his first uh, English language movie, a film called Enemy, with an actor called, wouldn't you know it, Jake Gyllenhaal. And he saw the script for Prisoners and he would tell coming soon, he says, it's the thing that happens that a script sometimes needs momentum. And from what I understood in the studio system, it's all about momentum. And in this case, the momentum and the kick was provided by Hugh Jackman, that Jackman had continued to circle the project without outright committing to it, but he here was suddenly a gap in his schedule that he would be interested in taking the lead role. This was at a point where Jackman still had the clout, as I'd imagine he does now, actually, to get films moving. Look at how he lent his clout to The Greatest Showman when Hollywood studios wouldn't back a big musical of that ilk, certainly not one based on a property that didn't previously exist. And going back to that Coming Soon uh, interview with Denis Villeneuve, he says you have to find the right cast with the right director at the right moment. And if something doesn't work, it collapses. And he said of prisoners, there's a window of opportunity. And if I wasn't able to convince Hugh Jackman at the right moment, I wouldn't be here today. Well, he did manage to convince Hugh Jackman at the right moment. Jackman, uh, in the midst still of his Wolverine reign and thus studios, very, very keen to work with him. His name would guarantee the film some profile overseas outside of the US as well. And he, uh, and then Villeneuve for the other lead role. And as the script had evolved, it had turned into more of a two-hander than the more singular tale than Guzikowski had originally envisaged. Well, Villeneuve and, and Jake Gyllenhaal were working together on Enemy that wrapped up filming before Prisoners but would be released afterwards and as such he would cast Gyllenhaal in Prisoners who uh, without an audition but then of course Gyllenhaal already had history with the project he'd come close to it before and there were people who came in to audition for the film Ryan Gosling was in the frame for it at a while, for a while but Villeneuve was set on the idea of Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal as the two leads and he brought in a supporting cast including the likes of Viola Davis Maria Bello Melissa Leo uh, Paul Dano and Terence Howard both crucial parts of the ensemble as well uh, he'd bring in Clint Eastwood's uh, old editor Joel Cox as well and but also a crucial part of the prisoners uh, dynamic was its cinematographer its director of photography Roger Deakins now the pair had met at the Oscars when Villeneuve was nominated for best film not in the English language 
and Deakins had told Villeneuve what a fan he was of his work. And Deakins, again, it was one of those just little twists of fate that he had a bit of space in his schedule at that point. He was on the lookout for another project. He saw the Prisoner's script and he relayed the fact that he wanted to work with Denis Villeneuve and he wanted to work on this script. And this, all of a sudden, after many years of going, of going really around the Hollywood system a little bit, through many high-profile hands, looked like it was coming together. The Alcon Entertainment and Independent had set it up. It had sold the US rights, as I mentioned, to Warner Brothers. It had sold the rights elsewhere in the world to Summit Entertainment. And the budget was going to settle around 40 to $45 million. And because it was at that level, because he had the big names involved, Denis Villeneuve would be given a degree of protection here to make the film that he wanted to make, that he would ultimately get final cut of the movie. Unusual, certainly for a star-powered film as well. Um, but he could go into this film, whether he knew it or not, with the confidence that he was going to get pretty much what he wanted. Now, Jake Gyllenhaal would immerse himself in research of the character and he would talk about how he watched police interrogation videos that he would describe as, quote, horrific. And he said, I could feel myself resist how dark this world was. I could feel it inside, so visceral that it made me panic. But it broke me into this world. And then on the 20th of February, 2013, after four years bumbling around the Hollywood system, but with real regularity to the point that it was making headlines every couple of months, prisoners finally started shooting, primarily in Georgia in the US. There was some studio work as well. But what was what was coming across very quickly was how Denis Villeneuve and Roger Deakins were on the same page. That, for instance, they were both keen to use as much exterior natural light as possible and to make the film look as stark as possible. There's a particular shot in Prisoners, again, spoiler light, where we focus on a tree. Now, I won't give you the context of it, short of the fact that the shot of the tree hadn't actually been planned. This wasn't built into the original designs that Deakins and Villeneuve had, but they quickly, uh, they were reactive to what they were finding with location shooting, and they both zeroed in on this. They saw eye to eye on it. Deakins framed the shot, and Villeneuve knew that it was important, but he would explain to IndieWire that he was worried about that particular shot, and he was, quote, nervous enough to spring it on the crew at the last minute and his instincts on it were pretty correct because it got to the point where the producers came up to him and said Denis you've been shooting a tree for the last half an hour there are five Hollywood stars in their trailer we are a 200 person crew and you are having fun shooting a <coughs> clucking tree I think that's what it says my eyesight's a little bit funny the producers weren't happy with this little bit uh, and producers on the whole were happy with how this was going but they didn't quite get that and the coda to that particular story is long after the film was wrapped and was released the producer would seek out Denis Villeneuve and just say that is the best shot in the film you got that right but going back to Villeneuve's interview with IndieWire, he said it was very important to Roger to create a kind of claustrophobic environment, to feel the pressure on the characters and to feel the stress of winter and nature. And he said that meant always shooting in overcast lighting, never in sunlight and creating a flexible enough shooting schedule as to go indoors or out, depending on the cooperation of the weather. So this wasn't a traditional schedule. This wasn't where every single day was mapped out. They knew what scenes they needed to get, but also they knew that they were going to have to pivot fast if the weather was either on their side or against it. 
they were also careful with how they shot it. So let's go to Film School Rejects, for instance, where Villeneuve explained that we wanted to shoot the movie with subtle camera movements, always putting pressure on the characters. He said there were some scenes in the movie where we're following cars but we're trying to keep it as claustrophobic as possible. And part and parcel of that was the willingness to mix up the location work with studio sets, that there's a particularly brutal sequence that the only way they could get the space and flexibility to shoot it was to, to build that particular set on a soundstage rather than relying on some of the location work because they needed space to position the cameras to get really the angle on the horrific things that are going on in front of us. But still, even though some bits were, were very tightly planned, Villeneuve had his storyboards, but he was willing to go off-piste with, uh, with his cast on the day if they came up with something. This wasn't comedy-style improvisation, but there was instinctive uh, re reactiveness built into the way that he shot the film. As uh, And as Villeneuve would uh, say to Coming Soon, he said um, Roger Deakins at one point came up to him and said a two and a half hour movie with that kind of tension, violence, darkness, a questionable ending. And Roger Deakins kept saying on set, it's unbelievable. They don't make movies like this anymore. But by the 17th of May 2013, with the final shot of Prisoners in the can, that's what they'd done. They had shot the kind of thriller, the kind of dark thriller that Hollywood had resisted probably since David Fincher's Zodiac, which is a film I'm going to come to in the future on this podcast. I think that is an absolute masterpiece of a movie. But it's telling that Prisoners can be mentioned in pretty much the same breath of it. Now, as the film went into post-production, there wasn't actually a huge turnaround time here. So 17th of May 2013 was the last shot in the can, but the film would be debuting at the Telluride Film Festival on August the 30th, 2013. So what, just over three months afterwards and getting a wide release in the US on September the 20th, 2013. But then it didn't need a massive turnaround. This was one of those instances where the script had stayed constant, that they knew what the start, middle and end of this was. This wasn't the kind of project that required massive special effects and alien invaders and things like that. It was it was primarily an in-camera film. And it left two problems, really, as the film hit post-production. One was its length and the other was its rating. So on the length, I mean, it's, it's been a story pretty well told that the first cut of Prisoners turned out to be around three hours long. And so Villeneuve, along with editors Joel Cox and Gary D. Roach, would trim that down to a still weighty 153 minutes, although I'd say it's 153 minutes that goes by very, very, very quickly. But what Villeneuve had also shot uh, during the production of the movie as an insurance, really, was an alternate ending. And so it, I don't think it's a massive surprise to suggest that the ending of Prisoners is, uh, is quite bold, I think. Um, that sounds more spoilery than it is. I, I genuinely am not spoiling a thing here. Just that Villeneuve had shot a version of this that explained more, that added more footage to on top of the ending that we get in the film to put it all together with a nicer bow on it, if anything. And he'd done this in case the studio pushed back at him. Um, but still, the cut that he ultimately delivered had his original ending and he was surprised that he got no pushback on it at all that the, the, the ending, the slightly non-traditional ending that the film gets is the one that Villeneuve wanted and he never had, in the end, a conversation with the producers about changing it. In fact, the producers were hands-off 
for the most part, and it was Villeneuve's final cut that we got. There was a little bit of pushback from the Motion Picture Association of America, the ratings board in the US, that did on first inspection give prisoners the dreaded NC-17 rating, which would mean no nobody under the age of 17 could see the film, but more, to, more troubling for the distributors that most major American mo movie complexes would not show the film. They had a no NC-17 movie policy. This still baffles me, but there you go. Um, once upon a time, it also would have meant that video shops wouldn't carry it, although that was less of a problem in 2013. But still, they knew they had to cut it back. And so they pulled it. They, they did a couple of cuts just to take down a bit of the violence and the well, well, slightly more explicit edges of it. But still, small, small trims. And the film had secured its R rating and was ready to go before uh, before film critics. They, on the whole, were very, very positive towards it, that this was the kind of thriller that Hollywood wanted wasn't making a really absorbing drama as well in the midst of it um, and I think I mean again if you've not seen it this is quite a film now it was not unanimous praise that the film originally got at first that there's was it a little bit too long quite possibly if you wanted to get particularly picky and did it all did it all stand up I mean there was a little bit of critical pushback there but I think over time it has matured to the point where people really appreciate prisoners even more not least in the context of Denis nerves catalogue of work since but even more than they did at the time it was released i mean one of the people who an unlikely champion for the film actually at the time was now convicted rapist harvey weinstein but at that point still an influential figure in hollywood who would declare it his favorite film of the year he was not alone there that the, it ended up on quite a lot of top 10 lists um oddly the oscars gave it pretty much a complete snub though that uh, apart from roger deakin's photography it quite it got no academy award nominations whatsoever in spite of being regarded as one of the best films of that particular year still what it was was a box office success not an outright massive hit but certainly a success I mean it was released in September 2013 so that's not prime blockbuster period that's generally seen as the month where the early uh, the early early awards contenders come out and if you get a hit well that's nice but still, it secured a 20 million opening weekend in the US, 20.8 million. Um, it was up against Insidious Chapter 2 that had come out the week before. So that had dropped down into second. The new film that year was a, a movie called Battle of the Year, which I confess I know ab next of zero about. I mean, that would scuttle off with a, a 4 million opening weekend. And it, I mean, that opened in fifth place. There was a 3D re-release of The Wizard of Oz that came out that crashed the top 10 that week as well. Other films that were around in the top 10, there was The Family, Remember that? Robert De Niro, We're the Millers, Lee Daniels is the butler, uh, Vin Diesel in Riddick and Planes, the spin-off from the Cars series of movies. It was not a week of hefty competition, it would be fair to say. And the following week, three films came out, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, Baggage Claim and Don John. But that meant prisoners could hold on to second place and actually it would enjoy a little bit of a word of mouth run. Uh, Gravity would come out a, a week after that and pretty much dominate the box office for a little bit. But the prisoners you US take of $61 million for such a dark thriller was seen as a real success, not least when that amount of money was replicated outside the US as well. And there it sat with $122 million in its pocket before it went off to home formats where it's continued to find a crowd and continued to find an audience. 
In the aftermath, a few things happened. I mean, Guzikowski has built his career. I mean, he would do the television series, The Red Road, and then he would create the HBO Max series Raised by Wolves as well. For Denis Villeneuve, I mean, this would be... I, I mean, Enemy would come out just afterwards in spite of being made before, but he would move on to films like Sicario, um, Arrival, and the belated Blade Runner follow-up. I will come to all of those at some point in the podcast, I'm sure. And then there's the odd little unexpected spin-off from Prisoners in that there's a story that it turned into the unlikely catalyst for the Netflix sensation uh, Stranger Things, that uh, comfortably one of Netflix's most successful shows, that the creators of that apparently used the core thinking of Prisoners, but decided to run that kind of ethos and that kind of idea across a miniseries and put in a few twists and turns and Stranger Things was born. And so whilst it's not a rip-off of Prisoners, there were real influences in there that have been acknowledged. But crucially, and as Roger Deakins said uh, while they were making the film, this is the kind of movie that doesn't get made. And in fact, to th- when you think of how many films since 2013 of this ilk and darkness have been made with movie stars and released in cinemas, it is not a very long list at all. I would commend to you, Prisoners, if you've not had the chance to seek it out, it is a really absorbing grown-up piece of work. And I think it's one of the best Hollywood thrillers of the last 20 years. Do check it out if you haven't already. And that brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. I've got parish notices to get through a few things. I have two live shows now on sale. On June the 23rd, 2022, I'm bringing Movie Geek Live for the first time to London. It will be at Leicester, a cinema in Leicester Square. And then on June the, July the 13th, I am returning to the Midlands Arts Centre in Birmingham. So details of tickets for both of those shows can be found at www.filmstories.co.uk. You will find the details in one of the top six boxes on the website. If you're struggling to find it, just find me on Twitter at Simon Brew and I will give you a nudge in that direction. If you like this podcast, there are a few things you can do to help and support it. And all of these are appreciated. Feel free to do as many or as few as you like. Well, I'm at Patreon, patreon.com slash Simon Brew. If you want to financially support what I'm trying to do with film stories, I use the money there to invest in resources for this podcast and also to support new and upcoming writers and try and give them paid work and a break into the industry. Um, You also, in return for any financial support, you find out what we're up to early and you generally get all the podcasts early as well. Um, if you could subscribe to this podcast, your podcast home of choice, that's hugely appreciated. And likewise, you can leave ideally a hugely positive review. I'd appreciate that as well. But that's enough parish notices. I'm going to move on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories. Now, this isn't one, I know this is one that lots of people like. I'm not as keen on, really, but the story behind it I found fascinating. So let me play you a clip. We're going back to 1993, and I'll come to the story of this one, the other side of this. I got money, I got security, I have businesses, but you have something that I just don't have. Well, I guess there's limits to what money can buy. Not many. Some things aren't for sale. Such as? But you can't buy people. So what are you saying? You can't buy love? That's a bit of a cliche, don't you think? It's absolutely true. Well, let's test the cliche. Suppose I were to offer you one million dollars for one night with your wife. David, I think you want me to do it. Why do you want to do it? I do it for you. I think if I went 
this money could do for us, what it could do for our future. It's just my body. It's not my mind. It's not my heart. You might enjoy it. Don't bet on it. There you go, the 1990s for you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, That is a clip from 1993's Indecent Proposal, directed by Adrian Lyne, written by, well, screenplay by Amy Holden-Jones, based on the novel Indecent Proposal by Jack Englehard, and starring Robert Redford, Demi Moore, Woody Harrelson, Oliver Platt and Seymour Cassell. And so let's go back to Jack Englehard and his novel, Indecent Proposal, which was the catalyst for all of this. It was released in 1988, the year after the film Fatal Attraction had hit big, which happened to be directed by Adrian Lyne and produced by Sherry Lansing. You're going to hear those two names again shortly. But the premise of the novel at heart, well, underpinning it all was fairly simple. A three-hander, a very rich man, offers a man $1 million for one night with his wife. Does he take it? But the novel... The novel was very different, actually, that uh, as much as the film turned into a fairly glossy Hollywood romantic comedy, erotic thriller, whatever you want to call it, the actual book, well, the, 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 lead, the, the main character in it was an Arab billionaire called Ibrahim Hassan. And there was, well, less about the indecent proposal in it. And there were lots of other things in the book. But readers were hooked in enough with the idea of it to the point where the rights to Indecent Proposal were soon snapped up by Paramount Pictures in a deal initially worth $120,000. Now, at this stage, the project found its way to two young producers who championed it, Alex Gartner and Tom Shulman, and they got to work stripping away some of the book's more political elements. And Stephen Galloway charts some of this in his excellent biography of Sherry Lansing, which is called Leading Lady, Sherry Lansing in the Making of a Hollywood Groundbreaker. I'm going to be touching on that a couple of times in this story as well as Demi Moore's memoir. So under the guidance of Gartner and Shulman, they hired the writer Amy Holden-Jones to, uh, I mean, basically strip away the political elements that were riding right around the book. And instead, it centred in on something a bit more 1990s, uh, uh, described as a yuppie couple badly in need of money who consider a billionaire's offer to have sex with the character of Diana Murphy, who's married to David Murphy and accepts the indecent proposal offer, or does she, from uh, the billionaire billionaire who's called John Gage. Now, even though the two producers, Gartner and Shulman, were fairly uh, were fairly new producers, they were certainly savvy enough to get the idea to Adrian Lyne, who was riding high in Hollywood. I mean, nine and a half weeks, indecent proposal to his name. He'd just come off the back of Jacob's Ladder, but was still primarily known for erotic thrillers. And so if you had an idea that involved a bit of nookie and a bit of a thriller, who are you going to send it to? And so Lyne would take a look at the script and he was interested. He said it didn't really as well as fatal but I remember thinking it was a terrific idea the idea would you oh I can't read cluck somebody yeah cluck somebody for one million dollars and if you wouldn't would you do it for five million dollars and he said the morality or lack of it around that question was just marvellous So Lyne was interested, but he was a little bit wary about working with novice producers on the film because he wanted a bit more experience. And so he got back in touch with his fatal attraction producer, Sherry Lansing, who would soon be heading up Paramount Pictures. And he knew he needed someone more experienced. And Lansing would say the script was very dark and twisted, but it had that kernel of a great idea. He said, I knew we were onto something when I was at dinner with some women and asked what they thought. And they said they'd definitely sleep with a guy for a million dollars as long as he looked looked right and she said the men were outraged everyone got into a big argument and Lansing spying the moral conundrum at the heart of it realized that there was something there 
Now, that didn't mean she instantly signed on the dotted line because Lansing had been through the Hollywood system a little at this point and she realised that as the most experienced producer of those attached, she would be basically shouldering the burden of that side of the film and argued that Gartner and Shulman should effectively be relegated to executive producers and she'd be the sole producer of the movie. And so Paramount would go along with this, but it did soften the blow to a not very happy Gartner and Shulman with a sizable check apiece. But it meant that at heart, the Fatal Attraction team of Sherry Lansing and Adrian Lyne were together again. Now, Lyne wanted, he wasn't thrilled with the script and he wanted changes. And so at that stage in Hollywood, the top Hollywood screenwriter was William Goldman, the writer of uh, The Lights of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, written a couple of terrific books on Hollywood as well. But basically, if you want prestige rewrite, you go to William Goldman. And so he was brought in to do some script work. He said it would take me about two weeks to do. And duly on time, two weeks later, he delivered his rewrites. And well, let's just say they fell flat. And so there were further notes that were sent back to Goldman. He took another pass of the script, but it didn't actually move too far beyond what Amy Holden Jones had put on this on the page. She would take sole credit for the script in the end, although another writer is coming in shortly. It did mean that, I mean, it just looked like this was going to happen. And so they could move on to the casting phase of it. So who's going to play this billionaire, John Cage? Because you need some degree of Hollywood royalty there. You need someone who could walk onto the screen and bring with them instantly a bit of backstory to them. And so who better than Warren Beatty? I mean, he was the logical choice, a notorious womanizer around Hollywood at this point, although he was just in the process of settling down. But he was interested. But the thing with Warren Beatty is just because he said he was interested didn't mean he was going to make a decision on him. Um, very well renowned for procrastinating on his projects and not being committal until fairly late in the day. Beatty was coming off the back of films like Dick Tracy and the Oscar nominated Bugsy and in fact he would go on to in the end commit to a, a remake of an affair to remember called Love Affair with Annette Benning, who he would ultimately marry and whilst he was interested in Indecent Proposal um, he didn't actually ever answer and so, as Lansing would note, we, we just sort of moved on in the end. that The offer was out there, but Beatty was still thinking about it by the time that the film was released in cinemas. So Adrian Lyne put forward another name, that of Tommy Lee Jones instead. He was about to win an Oscar for The Fugitive. They didn't know that at the time. But Tommy Lee Jones was already getting a reputation, fairly or otherwise, for being a little bit prickly. And so Lansing was a little bit resistant of him. But she reckoned the role was right for Robert Redford. Now, this was an era in Robert Redford's career where things were a little bit tricky for him, that he hadn't had a hit for a while. He was putting his energies, his money, his time into the Sundance Film Festival. And I mean, the, the money coming in wasn't quite matching the money going out. And so he moved to creative artist agency, CAA, notorious Hollywood agents, and they were on the lookout for more, more commercial projects for him. So they certainly found one, uh, the film Sneakers, which I've covered before on this podcast and which we've put out a Blu-ray of as well. He would wrap that in and around his latest directorial effort, A River Runs Through It, but they were still looking for more commercial roles for him and this just seemed to fit. Um, John, the, the role of John Gage just, just felt like it was made for him. And so the, the suggestion was put forward by Lansing, how about Robert Redford? And Adrian Lyne just wasn't keen. He just felt Redford was too big a star for this. He'll overbalance the dynamic of the movie and I mean Lansing and Lyon would have several disagreements over the course of the making of the film this was one where he nearly walked away from the project but in the end he agreed 
to take a meeting with Redford and was completely charmed by him in the end. It went well. Redford signed on the dotted line. He was in. Not before there was some disagreement over his fee, however, because, again, it had been nearly a decade since he'd had either a big box office hit or a big uh, critical hit. I think it was Out of Africa was the one uh, that, that preceded this. And so Heat's negotiating position wasn't that strong. And so instead of taking a huge upfront salary, they agreed a deal where he would lower his upfront price and in exchange would take 15% of the revenue from the movie. Now, it would turn out to be a very, very savvy bit of negotiation because in the end, Redford was said to have trousered some $40 million for his work in Indecent Proposal. If he hadn't said yes, other names that were on the list for the role of John Gage included Jeff Bridges and Dustin Hoffman. But Redford did say yes, although he's about to try and walk away again. But I'm coming to that shortly. So in terms of the female lead, the story doing the rounds was that Julia Roberts was offered the uh, the role of Diana, uh, Diana Murphy in the movie. But she wasn't that interested, even though she was the biggest female star at the box office at, in Hollywood at that point. And the timing of it didn't really work either, because the offer apparently went in in September 1991 with a view of getting indecent proposal filming in January 1992. And that didn't really work anyway, because this was the point where Roberts was taking a bit of time away from acting. And it was I mean, it was a risky role as well and in the end she turned it down others came in and tested even as the planned start date for the film moved back and so some of these are rumors some of these are unknown names such as Isabel Ajani Lolita Davison um, Nicole Kidman was said to have tested at one point by March of 1992 and in fact the Hollywood trades tittle tattle was suggesting that Indecent Proposal could be reshaped as a possible project for Kidman and her then husband Tom Cruise but Cruise's interest never seemed to cement really and uh, not least because the the, the, mor the morality of the film didn't necessarily align with his own belief but also I can't really find evidence out there that he was close to signing on the dotted line anyway Kidman nonetheless dropped out of the running she was certainly said to be in the running for it Irene Jacob tested for it Sophie Marceau she tested for it and as the Hollywood cliche story goes the last person in the room to come in and try out for the role of Diana was Demi Moore now Demi Moore at this point was filming A Few Good Men and Adrian Lyne was always insistent no matter how big the star is he wanted them to audition and so she agreed to do so uh, and the audition went well but as she reports in her own memoir she 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 got the role and then got the script and she said the number of sex scenes that she was reading was alarming that she liked the story she liked the moral conundrum of this one she knew that adrian line made sexually charged pictures she wasn't naive about this she was also aware that as a co-star woody harrelson's name was being mentioned i'll come to him in a second and woody harrelson was friends with her then husband bruce willis so there was something a bit odd about that as well but the bit that really pushed her head over the line and convinced her that actually this has got something to it was the casting of Robert Redford, that he added a sheen of class to the whole project, as well as extra exposure, no pun intended. And so she was in. Now, she would then work out relentlessly before filming began, That and she talks openly about this. She knew that she was going to be involved in, in assorted scenes of fruitiness that would involve disrobing, and so she would work out and work out and work out. And this would cause one, again, of a few conflicts she had with Adrian Lyne, because Lyne didn't actually ask her to do this, didn't want her to lose loads and loads of weight, but she would fight her corner on this and push back. She would not unreasonably reason that it was her that was going to be on camera. And so Line would go with uh, with one of his lead stars on this one. 
the last role really that actually ha that, that had to be cemented was David Murphy, who would be playing Demi Moore's husband in the film. So I mentioned Harrelson. There were a couple of names in the in, uh, linked at the time. Johnny Depp, a couple of Baldwins. Tim Robbins was linked in the spring of 1992. But it was Sherry Lansing who pushed for Woody Harrelson, who at that stage was best known for the TV show Cheers. Now, Line again was not convinced by this until he caught a screening of a film called White Men Can't Jump. You might have heard of it in which Harrelson co-starred with Wesley Snipes and that was really Woody Harrelson's jump into the world of movies. When Line saw that, he was convinced he wanted to cast Harrelson but things weren't going to be quite so straightforward there. So even before filming began, a couple of things that uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the heads of Paramount at the time was a man, Stanley Jaffe, and he knew that the studio had a shortage of films for Christmas 1992. Now, I've talked about this briefly when I discussed the film Leap of Faith starring Steve Martin in a previous episode of the podcast, that Paramount needed ideally two films for the end of 1992. It didn't have any in production, and so it wanted to fast track Indecent Proposal. Now, Adrian Lyne had built into his contract a prolonged period of post-production to work on this and the idea of suddenly rushing the movie, well, he was having absolutely none of it and dug his heels in. In the end, Paramount would just have one movie out at that Christmas and, it, and that wouldn't do particularly well, that being the aforementioned leap of faith. Finally, in the case of Indecent Proposal, shooting was scheduled to begin in May of 1992, although it wouldn't, but it would be near as, pending Robert Redford's schedule, freeing up to take on the role of John Gage. But even with that deal being offered, he would take his time committing to, to the project. And in fact, as late as April 19, 1992, the Los Angeles Times was reporting he turned down uh, $4 million to take on the supporting role. And it was the share of the profits that really pushed him over the line there. But we, uh, uh, weeks after the film was supposed to start shooting, and in, in the end it would be June of 1992 that it would, another problem hit when Woody Harrelson's involvement was thrown into doubt. That Liner decided he wanted Harrelson, Lansing wanted Harrelson, but Woody Harrelson had also committed to making a different movie, a film called Benny and June, that would ultimately star Johnny Depp and Mary Stuart Masterson. Um, and Harrelson had reportedly signed a contract in this uh, to, to star in Benny and June, but he would pull out of that film in April 1992 and MGM, the studio backing it, would promptly sue. And they all knew this was going to happen. I mean, they were fairly open about, we know that he's going to quit, we're going to sue. They did indeed sue. And in the end, Paramount had to fork out around half a million dollars to MGM to cover Harrelson's alleged breach of contract. Now, while all this was going on, the location scouting and such like was pressing ahead. Pre-production work was underway. And finally, after two weeks of rehearsals, Indecent Proposal was set to go before the cameras in June of 1992. The shoot would primarily be set in and around the California area in the US with a bit of a trip to Las Vegas and to Malibu as well. In fact, it would start filming in Las Vegas, but not before another problem had hit. That Robert Redford had a bit of a wobble that they'd sat down as part of the rehearsals and done a full read through of the script with all the cast uh, around the table. And again, as reported in Stephen Galloway's book on Sherry Lansing, he says, we get a call. Mr. Redford wants to see you. And we go up to his suites. These are the words of Sherry Lansing. And she said, I thought he was going to tell us he didn't like something in the script, but he said, I want out. 
and she couldn't believe what she was hearing. And Redford said, the kids are wonderful, but I'm not. It's their movie. And even though Lansing tried to persuade Redford that he's great in it, uh, Redford just said, that's very kind, but I have to leave. And so days before principal photography was supposed to be up and running, Robert Redford was about to quit the movie. And he was deadly serious about this as well. And so, I mean, Paramount and Sherry Lansing just lurched into action here. So a couple of things. Firstly, they had to scout out possible replacements. If they couldn't change Robert Redford's mind, they were going to need someone else to come in. I mean, Warren, Warren Beatty was still considering the first time they were asking him, so they couldn't really go back to him. But what changed things was a call that went into his agents. And because there was a real fear that the film would fold if Redford wasn't involved. Paramount would just cut its losses. I mean, it was going to spend in the region of about $40 million on this movie to make it. That's expensive for the era for a non-action movie. But it was his agents who had an idea. Bring in another writer, they said, just to smooth over one or two things. And the agency suggested a writer called Robert Getchell, who'd done Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore. And so, I mean, <laughs> Getchell got the call for the assignment, looked at the script, and he said, well, the script's wonderful. I don't know what to change. And Lansing said to him, I agree. So here's what I'm begging you to do. Write whatever Robert Redford wants, but make sure there's nothing you add into the script that we can't cut out in the editing if we need to. And it was a curious assignment, but, you know, Getchell got his check and was flown to Las Vegas and started on some rewrite work. And Redford was assured and he was back in. Uh, meanwhile, Demi Moore's concerns over the sexually explicit nature of the script. I mean, she would uh, she would recount in her book about how in the end she made a deal with Adrian Lyne about it that she said he would be free to shoot the sex scenes however he wanted, but in the end, I could review the footage, and if there was anything I felt was too invasive or gratuitous, he would cut it. And he, she described it as an arrangement that required a lot of trust on both of our parts, and she said I appreciated his willingness to collaborate like that, but she was also very aware that, quote, I would be on display again. She would also put in a call to Glenn Close about how the sex scenes in Fatal Attraction were shot. And uh, I mean, Glenn Close just said Adrian Lyne is a bit different in the way that he does it. And so going back to Moore's book, which is called Inside Out, if you've, if you're not reading it, it's a really interesting memoir. She said Adrian is a true voyeur, which is part of why his films are so interesting and potent. But she says on set, it's very kooky. He literally didn't stop talking, practically hollering the whole time we were shooting the sex scenes. Oh, my eyesight's playing up. A bit, a bit here clucking raunchy oh god got a what's that a loner on that no can't read that he'd yell come on grab his grab his what grab his what i don't I, I mean heck what's a bick don't know and she said at first it was creepy here was this guy with this sort of long-haired british rocker look getting all sweaty and worked up yelling about rude things but once i got used to it i saw its advantages more rogue and she said having adrian carry on that way took the focus off my own awkwardness because he was so over the top and in fact when the film did go into post-production and she reviewed the sequences she didn't change a thing she said she was really happy with how it was done and she would describe it as one of the one of the most well shot movies that she'd she'd ever appeared in that she was really pleased with that aspect of it she was still working to a punishing schedule to the point where she did make herself ill on this that she was working out daily i mean she'd come pretty much straight from making a few good men to this one uh, to the point where at one point she contracted walking pneumonia and had to take a sick day and it's an interesting bit she notes in her memoir that she said that that's nothing an actor that's not the kind of thing an actor wants on their record that they took a sick day it's almost like in the system of hollywood you're not allowed to be ill 
Now, Line wanted to shoot one sequence on location in inner city Los Angeles, and this was the one conflict that happened between Demi Moore and Robert Redford. And the area that Line wanted to shoot in was pretty much rife with gang warfare at the time, as, uh, as reports account. And Lansing didn't want him to go there, but Line won that particular battle, and so the studio hired in extra security. It was bringing in movie stars and such like. But Robert Redford, in the midst of that, still managed to go missing when they were due to shoot a sequence or two of his, and he would reappear many hours later. No one quite sure where he'd gone. And it was Demi Moore who went into Redford's trailer and basically read him the riot act that they'd been waiting for him and it wasn't fair. And Redford after that was on time right throughout. Filming in the end would wrap up on Indecent Proposal. It's quite a long shoot, actually, four months for this one. On the 16th of October, 1992, it definitely wasn't going to be ready for Christmas of 1992. And Lyon was given space to have his uh, five months of post-production that he wanted on the film that he got written into his deal. Now, he would use those five months up as well. In fact, the finished film was done in March 1993, just a few weeks ahead of its release. And again, this was in the era of film. So the distribution of film takes a lot longer. You have to make film... Uh, put it in the cans, distribute it around the country, etc, etc. Um, the marketing campaign, however, was already in full flow and not for nothing would this marketing campaign win awards because it centred on the moral dilemma at the heart of the film. Would you would you sleep with someone else or allow your spouse to sleep with someone else for $1 million, a life-changing amount of money? And they played up the moral dynamics of that in all of the promotion for the film. Now, while that was bubbling up, Line was editing and testing at the same time. And the test screenings were not going well for Indecent Proposal. Each test screening, in fact, seemed to be getting worse as Lansing and Line would go, would go back to the edit suite and they'd look at the film and Line would cut it. And the same day it would be tested again. And Line, while he was shooting, would would shoot a lot of takes so they had a lot of options in the editing room but there would just be this daily program of cutting and testing and cutting and testing and in the end uh, as the test audiences were struggling to respond to it what they started to take some of the darker edges off the off the material they brought more sympathy for instance into the character played by Woody Harrelson in the film and they made it a bit more of a glossy Hollywood erotic thriller which is wasn't really how it initially started there was a backlash as well that was bubbling up heavily against the film. I mean, there had been a backlash against Basic Instinct just the year before. And here there were uh, people going on American television talking about how the idea of Indecent Proposal makes light of love, cheapens marriage, uh, a moral outrage. It's disgusting that at one stage there was a poster of Demi Moore lying in a pile of money with not many clothes on. Demi Moore, not the money, although I don't suppose the money had many clothes on either. And that was graffitied. The Los Angeles one with Sherry Lansing's head put onto it which wasn't the most pleasant experience for her but as this backlash was growing and the marketing came, uh, campaign was building up so word of mouth and interest in the film was also rising um, the reviews came in and absolutely hammered it there, there weren't many people who were willing to stick up for the film that I mean it was generally regarded as not that good a movie I mean you, you'd struggle to find too many positive reviews for it and in fact you, you, a lot more ink was put on objecting to the movie and to the moral dynamics of the film uh, 
Um, in theory, too, a, a far a, a far better spin on a not dissimilar idea had come out in 1992. The film Honeymoon in Vegas, directed by Andrew Bergman, starring Nicolas Cage and Sarah Jessica Parker, which is a film I like an awful lot more. But that wasn't a million miles away just in terms of the core idea. But Indecent Proposal proved to be better packaged, better sold and more willing to offend people. And basically, that's what happened. So never mind the fact that Hollywood had given uh, Paramount had given this at quite an off-piste release date. I mean, it was scheduled for April the 9th, 1993 in the US, which isn't really, wasn't at that stage regarded as, you know, a hot commercial spot to put the film in. Yet the film absolutely broke through and it soared to number one in its opening weekend of the 9th, the 11th of April, 1993, with an $18.3 million opening. Now, this might not sound a lot, um, but in the context of 1993, certainly in April, 1993, that was an enormous amount of money. Uh, Robert Redford was certainly pleased to see it. I don't know if Rob Warren Beatty had yet made his mind up. The other films that were around that week, I mean, The Sandlot opened that weekend. That was the only other uh, new piece of competition for it. That opened with 4.9 million. But all the discussion was about Indecent Proposal. So the other films in the top 10, Cop and a Half, The Adventures of Huck Finn, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, Crying Game was still in there, The Assassin, Straight Point of No Return, depending where you live, um, and a couple of uh, Oscar Holders. Overs, the Crying Game and Unforgiven were still in the chart, but this was Indecent Proposals weekend and it went absolutely nuts and continued to go nuts. I mean, it held most of its uh, box office. It only dropped 20% in its second week. Benny and June opened that second week as well with $3 million as well. A real commercial disappointment for MGM, that, although I think that's a charming film. And Indecent Proposal was the top film for weeks and weeks, in fact. In fact, it, would be, it wouldn't be until May the 7th that Dragon the Bruce Lee story knocked it off the top of the chart. And by the time Indecent Proposal had done in US cinemas, it had grossed $106 million there. It would add another $160 million overseas because who knew that moral question would travel across, uh, across countries right across the world. And it would prove to be uh, the, the kind of hit that every studio was looking for in 1993. Not massively expensive to produce. Um, uh, got some degree of cultural zeitgeist to it and, and just broke through. It was a one-off, although there was talk briefly of a remake of the movie coming in 2018, but that seemed to fizzle out, although there'd been massive uh, pandemics and diseases since that point. But as it stands, 19, uh, in, in the midst of 1993's movies, and there were some huge hits that year, Indecent Proposal was one of the few just to stake out a bit of a claim and help itself to an awful lot of money. I don't love the film. I still don't love the film however as a piece of marketing it's exceptional as a piece of packaging it's exceptional and it has an exercise in how to take a contentious book and strip it down into something palatable for a Hollywood audience I mean it's quite a good lesson which all brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. As always, I've waffled too much. Still, if you want to suffer more of my waffling, you can find it on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. Our website, filmstories.co.uk, is uh, updated every weekday with news, reviews, features and details of live shows as well. You'll find all of that there. If you go to store.filmstories.co.uk, all of our print magazines are for sale there, as well as our aforementioned sneakers, Blu-ray, facebook.com slash filmstories.com youtube.com slash film stories as well um, but i've hopelessly overrun so i'm going to thank you for your time and for your eardrums uh, i'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories the most important thing as ever is you all take care you all stay safe and you all look after yourselves i'll be back soon bye bye